Well, in the summer of 1995, I got on my knees and gave my heart to Jesus. The same year that I was crowned with God's glory, a woman by the name of Heather Whitestone, Miss Alabama, was crowned Miss America. During the pageant, Heather was asked this question. Now, I guarantee she did not win the pageant based upon her answer to this question. It had to be something else because her answer was a little confusing. If you could live forever, would you and why? You want to hear her answer? I would not live forever because we should not live forever. Because if we were supposed to live forever, then we would live forever. But we cannot live forever, which is why I would not live forever. What? You know, people say some of the strangest things when you're caught in the headlights of pressure. Miss Alabama's answer serves to illustrate the backward thinking of fallen man. According to Romans 6.23, God's original plan was not that man would ever experience death. God's plan was that man would live forever. Death is the wage that we pay for our sins. But I want you to understand something, not you, not me. You know why? Because Jesus has already paid my sin debt in full. For the Bible says in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, I like the second part of that verse a whole lot better, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The gospel promise, on the other hand, is that by faith in Christ, we can look forward to the resurrection and we can look forward to everlasting life. So it's okay if we and former Miss America decide we would like to live forever because we should live forever because we are supposed to live forever and we will live forever, which is why we should want to live forever. Does that make more sense to you? I mean, that sounds a little confusing too, but I think I would choose that one rather than her answer. Well, I want to minister for a little while this morning through a message I'm calling the everlasting arms of the eternal God. And what I want you to see today is a couple of things. The everlasting arms are attached to Jesus. He holds us firmly, he holds us securely, and he holds us eternally in those arms. So spiritually speaking now, not naturally, but spiritually speaking, you and I have done all the dying we're going to do. You and I will live forever in the everlasting arms of the eternal God. So I want to ask you this question this morning. What picture forms in your mind when you think about the everlasting arms of the eternal God? It's pretty easy. We're probably just about all on the same page. Do you see Jesus? Do you see the Father standing with His arms wide open? I see Him smiling. I see Him joyful to see us. I see His arms wide open. I hear Him say, come, come to me. All ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The word everlasting, the everlasting arms, first surfaces in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, and it's in connection with Noah's covenant, a covenant of grace. You say, Pastor Mark, how do you know Noah's covenant was a covenant of grace? I'm going to tell you how I know it's a covenant of grace. Here's what God said in, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8. And Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The word grace there is used for the very first time in the Bible. And it says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now here's the deal. God said that to Noah. He said that about Noah even before God gave him the blueprint to build that awesome, massive ark. 
God said that about Noah before Noah chopped down the first tree. God said, Noah, I found grace in you. You have found grace in my eyes. Why is that important? Because if Noah would have built this massive ship, it was 450 feet long. That's one and a half football fields in length. It was 75 feet in width. It was 45 feet tall. That's a pretty big boat. It took him 100 years to build it. If God would have said that afterwards, Noah could have said, yeah, look what I did. I, I can see why I found grace in your eyes, Father. Because look at what I've done. But God said, Noah, you have found grace in my eyes. You have done nothing yet. In Hebrews chapter 11, you can see he's commended for his faith, right? So the first time it surfaces in the Bible, it's in connection with a covenant of Noah. You don't become a friend of God based on what you do. I remember years ago, I used to like fishing a lot. I had trophy fish on my wall. I took them down to my work. I had that big bass on the wall. I had that big muskie up on the wall that I had caught myself. Still had the lures sticking in their mouth. I caught them with. Had them all stuffed, mounted, put on the wall. And I remember a guy looking at my fish one day just thinking, wow, man, I could, wish I could catch a fish like that. I was brand new in the Lord. I don't think I was more than a couple months old in Jesus. And I could see him looking at the fish. And I, said, I walked over and took my big muskie off the wall. And I brought it over to him. And I said, here, it's yours. He looked at me and said, because people don't give away their trophy fish now. Come on, man. Guys need something to brag about, right? I caught that fish, you know. And so I gave him the fish, and the guy said, what? I said, it's a gift. Take it. It's yours. He's like, are you serious? I said, I'm serious. He took his hand out, stuck it out in front of me and said, man, you have got yourself a friend for life. That's what the guy said to me. But God said, I have found grace in this man before he has done anything. Now, as believers, it it doesn't mean that we don't do anything for God. Oh, we do do things for God. But it's His love working in our heart that compels us to do what we do for God. It's not so that we will get His love from Him. We found grace, believe me, before Triumphant Grace Ministries, didn't we, honey? We found grace before this church was birthed. We've been waiting on the blueprint from God for Triumphant Grace Ministries. What we've seen for growth in these two years, listen, here's what I want to say. What we've seen for growth does not match, if you look at it in the natural, it does not match the vision that God has put on the inside of us, but there's a day coming. There's a perfect time that's coming. But one thing that we must never forget, again, is our audience is much larger than what you see here. They're all part of our church. I heard the Lord say it will come supernaturally and it will come exponentially. In other words, it will have exponential growth to it. So my wife and I were talking about this the other day and I said, honey, our main goal is not Listen to me, it is not to be successful. It's to be faithful. That's our primary goal. It's to be faithful. So clearly, the Bible says Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. What else did Noah find, though? And this is the part I really love. You're going to find that Noah finds the covenant. He's got this covenant with God. He says, but I will establish my covenant. Now, That is the first time the word covenant comes up in the Bible, and covenant comes up in connection with a man named Noah, whose name means rest, who's got grace on his life, and God has declared righteous. Do you see the salvation picture there? It's just so easy to see. But I will establish my covenant with you. What kind of covenant is it? We're going to find out. It's an everlasting covenant, and the Bible calls it that. It calls it just that, an everlasting covenant. So what really what we have today is the type and shadow was his everlasting covenant of grace. That's exactly what we have today on our life. We have this everlasting covenant of grace. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you 
will enter the ark. Remember two weeks ago when I preached that message, resting in grace righteousness? I used the type and shadow of Noah's ark to prove that that is a picture of Christ. And God is saying here, I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark. In other words, you will enter Christ. Oh, how beautiful. You will enter Christ. You know, the thing about this is everything and everyone that was in the ark lived. Everything and everyone that was outside of the ark died. It's still the same way. Everyone that's in Christ lives. Everyone that's outside of Christ dies. The Bible says in Acts chapter 17, verse 28, it's in Him. It's in Him that we live and move and have our being. It's in Christ that we live and move and have our being. Now, that's in chapter 6. The mention of covenants came up for the first time. Let's skip 7 and 8 because that's when the earth is destroyed. 7 and 8 is all about the flood. Most people think that the flood only lasted 40 days and 40 nights. No, the rain only fell for 40 days and 40 nights. But Noah and his family were in that ship for more than a year. So now let's skip up to chapter 9, beginning at verse 8. We are post-flood. Everything has been destroyed. Watch what God says. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you. There's that word again. It's mentioned for the second time. He said, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals and those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. Verse 11, I establish my covenant with you. It's the third time he's mentioned it. God is really wanting to drive home this point. I establish my covenant with you. He says, never again, never again will all the life be destroyed by waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. Verse 12, and God said, this is the sign of the covenant, the fourth time. This is the sign of the covenant I am making between you and every living creature with you. A covenant for all generations to come. He says, I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Verse 14, whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. That is the seventh time God has mentioned this word covenant. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the cloud, I will see it. And here's the time he says, the everlasting covenant. And what's significant about that is that's the first time the word everlasting comes up. Remember the laws of first mention. When you see something come up for the first time, it has significant meaning. So in Noah's narrative so far, we've seen he has a covenant of grace. He's a man that has an everlasting covenant of grace. Powerful, powerful imagery right here. He said, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. The first mention of the word covenant there in chapter 6 has everything to do with the covenant of grace. Remember, Noah is the man of grace. The second mention of the word covenant is Abraham. And in chapter 15 of Genesis, what you see is God establishing in a covenant with Abraham. Abraham, we know, was the man of faith. What I felt the Lord say to me again is this, always reminding me, do you see those first two covenants of Noah and Abraham? 
When we step over into the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, the Bible says there, for by grace, in other words, like Noah's covenant, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. So when grace and faith come together, when those two covenants come together, you know what it equals? It equals salvation. You fall into the everlasting arms of the eternal God through this covenant of grace. That's how it happens. The fact that God mentioned uh, the word covenant so many times to his promise to Noah tells me again he's pretty serious about that. All in all, there were eight mentions of the word covenant. I find this very interesting that there were also eight people on the ark. Why is the number eight so significant? There are no things in the Bible that are meaningless. The number eight is very, very significant. I'll tell you why. The number eight signifies a new beginning. You see, you have seven days in a week, and when seven days are gone, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, you step into Sunday again, and that's called the eighth day. It's a new week. Eight is the number for a new beginning. In Leviticus chapter 12, verse 3, the Bible says, God commanded for a baby to be circumcised on the eighth day. Not the ninth day. Not the seventh day. But on the eighth day. In Leviticus chapter 12, verse 3, it says, On the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. And even the Apostle Paul over in Philippians, when he was writing to the church of Philippi, he said, listen, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees. And he even says, I was even circumcised on the eighth day. And then the Apostle Paul went on to write in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 19, he went on to say, wait a minute, though, let me tell you something, though. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. What kind of commands are we talking about? Are we talking about we need to keep the Ten Commandments? Is that what counts? No. <laughs> Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 34, a new command I give you, love one another. That's his new command. Not follow the Ten Commandments. He said, this is the new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. That's an awesome love, isn't it? That's an extravagant love. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, the Bible says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. When you take the ark and you meld it together with those eight souls that were saved and you marry it with the covenant, you have a new beginning. And it fulfills the scripture found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. The Bible says, if any man be in Christ, there's your ark. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. In other words, he's saying you have a new beginning. When you step into the ark, you have a brand new beginning in Christ. You have an everlasting covenant that's come into the place. As I was looking at this word, I kept seeing the everlasting arms reaching out of heaven and wrapping themselves around us and picking us up and eternally planting us in Christ, eternally planting us in the ark. His name is none other than Jesus, and he is the everlasting arms of our eternal God. In Isaiah chapter 40, verses 28 through 31, here's what Isaiah said. Do you not know? Have you not heard? He says, the Lord is the everlasting God. He said, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. 
but those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. And that word wait literally means to bind together. That's exactly what we do when we come to church. We bind together. There's power when we bind together. Those that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall rise up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Here's why I don't grow weary and I don't faint. is because I am not trusting in my wings. I'm trusting in my Savior's wings. I'm trusting in my Savior's everlasting arms. The Bible says in Psalm chapter 91, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in Him will I trust. Surely He shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He shall cover thee with His feathers and under His wings shall thou trust. Oh, man, do you see what God is saying? He's saying, listen, just like a mother hen would put her wings over her chicks, that's what God does to us. He says, we are under his feathers. We are under his wings. Psalm 91, powerful scripture. Psalm 91 tells us that we're under the Lord's everlasting wings. We're under his everlasting arms. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, but for you who fear my name, this is the way God said it, but for you who fear my name, and it literally means to worship. It doesn't mean to be afraid of God, scared of God. You should never be afraid of your father. There's nothing to be afraid of him. But those who fear, those who worship my name, he says this, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. And then he says, and you will go free, leaping with joy like calves let out to pasture. So often when I went by farms, I can see these newborn calves. They just have so much energy and they're just abounding and moving all over the place. That's the way we should be as believers. I want to tell you something. When you understand that the sun of righteousness is shining in your heart, he's shining in your life, he's shining through you, your energy level is going to go to another notch. I've come by today to tell you that healing is still in his wings. Salvation is still in his wings. Miracles are still in his wings. The message of grace is still in his wings. Love is still in his wings. Joy and peace are still in his wings. Love, mercy, forgiveness. You see, when Chris Tomlin wrote that song, Everlasting God, in the chorus it says, you are the everlasting God. You do not faint. You do not grow weary, he says. You are the defender of the weak. You comfort those in need. You lift us up on wings like eagles. He got that out of Isaiah chapter 40. Oh, man, see yourself. See yourself not just on his wings. See yourself under his wings. There's a time to soar on his wings. I would love to be just soaring on an eagle's wings and having that wind go through my hair. But there's a time it's so comforting to know that he's just put his Wings around you, his arms, his everlasting arms around you. Let me show you the scripture where this inspiration comes out of. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verses 26 and 27. 26 says, there is no one like the God of Yeshurun. J-E-S-H-U-R-U-N. It's pronounced Yeshurun. There is no one like the God of Yeshurun. Do you know what that name means? It means the upright one. Now you begin to see who they're talking about. There's no one like the God of Yeshurun. Yeshurun is symbolic of Israel, but you can see the type and shadow of Christ. He's saying there's no one, no one like the God of Yeshurun. The Septuagint actually defines it this way. It calls it the beloved one. There's no one like the God of the beloved one. And we know who that is. That's Jesus. He says, there's no one like the God of Yeshurun who rides across the heavens 
to help you and on the clouds in his majesty. I happen to really love that, to know that my God rides across the heaven to help me, that he has my interest in mind, that his eyes as he's scanning to and fro, he knows everything and he is there to help me. Now verse 27, it says, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. It says the eternal God is your refuge, exactly what Psalm 91 said. He is our refuge and our fortress. The eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arm. And then it says he will drive out your enemies before you saying destroy them. I've come by today to tell you that sickness is an enemy of God. Disease is an enemy of God. Poverty is an enemy of God. Lack is an enemy of God. Death, hell, and the grave are enemies of God. And it says in this word that he's come by to drive those things out. Those enemies, he's come by to push those things out of us. In Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11, we find these words. He says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has already been paid for. Are you kidding me? We're talking Old Testament. We're talking Old Covenant here now, right? We've got a much better covenant in the New Testament, right? And he says it here. He says, proclaim to her, tell her, tell Jerusalem that her hard service has been completed. In other words, she doesn't have to keep working hard to please me. Tell her that her hard service has been completed and that her sin has already been paid for. And I heard the Lord say last night when I was looking at that scripture, he said, you cannot rest in the everlasting arms of the eternal God until you fully believe that all your sins have been paid for. When you believe that, I'm telling you something, rest will be the result that you're going to experience. You'll be able to rest in the everlasting arms of the eternal God when you understand that all your sins have been paid for. Tell her that all of her sins have been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand. Hands are attached to arms, right? Can't move your hands without your arms. She has received from the Lord's hand double for her sins. I'm going to tell you something. What the enemy has stolen from you, God is going to make him pay back. I don't care what it is. God is going to make him pay back. It says it here, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins, a voice of one calling. Now they begin to get into the prophetic here of talking about John the Baptist here. Because it says, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. That is exactly what John the Baptist's message was. So you can see, long before John the Baptist was even on the earth, Isaiah was prophesying, there's going to be a man that comes and he's going to be calling, prepare the way for the Lord. He says, every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. Just like Zerubbabel when they said, shout grace, grace, and your mountain shall become a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all the people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? I mean, we keep asking that question when, when the Lord said, cry out. And I don't mean you have to shout it. I mean, I get happy and I start shouting. But he says, cry out. And we're saying, well, what shall I cry? Cry the goodness of the Lord. Tell people about the everlasting arms of an eternal God. Cry out about the grace of God and the mercy of God and the love of God. He says, cry out. And he asks the question, 
What shall I cry? What have I got to say? Oh, buddy, I want to tell you something. The hardest thing you'll ever find when you're talking about witnessing somebody that's a total stranger is just opening your mouth for that first second. And I'm going to tell you something. The Holy Spirit will fill your words. Will he do that, Steve? Have you seen him do that? I've seen him do that so many times. I am not kidding you. In some of the most challenging, some of the most awkward places sometimes, even sometimes I get a little inhibited. And finally, I can just feel the Holy Spirit and I'll finally just strike up that conversation. But you know what? My message is different today. My message today is to tell them about an everlasting God. Tell them about the everlasting arms of a God that wants to put his arms around them. Cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? He says, all people are like grass. (laughs) What? And their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. Did you hear what he just said? Their faithfulness is like the flower of the field. I don't know if I want faithfulness like that because it's beautiful for a moment, but then it's gone the next moment. You know what I'm saying? They don't last forever. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word, the word of the Lord endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, that's the church. Zion is a picture of the church. That's all we do at Triumph and Grace Ministries. We just keep bringing good news to Zion. Good news to the church. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules, watch this now, with his mighty arms. He rules with his mighty arms. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. And then I love this, how he ends this. He says, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. Do you see that picture of God? Do you see that picture of your daddy? That he gathers his lambs, and you're one of those lambs. He gathers his lambs in his everlasting arms, and the Bible says he holds them close to his heart. Not just so that he can hear their heart, but that so you can hear the Father's heart. You can hear the shepherd's heart. If you could listen to the heartbeat of God, you would hear a symphony, the most awesome symphony in the world. It wouldn't just be like ours. It would be the most symphonic thing you've ever heard in all of your life. He holds the lambs in his arms and carries them, the Bible says, close to his heart. In Isaiah chapter 46, verses 3 and 4, it says this, Listen to me, you descendants of Jacob, all the remnant of the people of Israel, you whom I have upheld since your birth. I'm telling you, God is holding us and have carried since you were born. See, there's never a moment of time that God is not carrying you. We always see that footprints in the sand and we think, oh, there's just times when, you know, things are just too big for me and God has to carry me. There's that one set of footprints, you know. Listen, God is always carrying you. There's always one set of footprints, okay? He is always carrying you, says right here, it says, and have carried you since you were born. Even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. Amen. And then verse 9 says this, Remember the former things of God, those of long ago. I am God and there is no one other than me. I am God and there's none like me. I want to show you a couple of stories that magnify, magnify the everlasting arms of this eternal God that I'm talking about reaching down to us. 
The first one is found in Acts chapter 7, and it's the story of Stephen. Stephen got in front of the Sanhedrin one day. Stephen was bold to the max because the first words out of his mouth was, you stiff-necked people. Man, that takes a lot of boldness to say that, doesn't it? And this is what he says. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. In other words, what he was saying is you have no new beginning yet. You're still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him, you who have received the law. The law, I'm telling you, you can be mean under the law. You can. You who received the law, and he says, that was given through the angels, but you haven't obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were ticked off. They were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. I'm going to tell you something. You'll do yourself a favor if you quit looking at your circumstances. Quit looking at your issues of life and start looking to God. That's what Stephen did. He's in the midst. They've got rocks in their hands. They've already dragged him out of the city. They've got rocks there. He knows his life is about to end. Surely you'd have thought at this point in time he'd be doing some backpedaling, but he's no, he's in their faces. And the Bible says he looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open. It's almost like he wanted to tell all that like they really cared. He said, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Do you remember a few minutes ago when I asked you to kind of get that mental picture in your head? What do you see when you think about the everlasting arms of God? (laughs) That's exactly what Stephen was seeing. He was seeing Jesus at the right hand of God, the Son of Man, as he said right there, standing at the right hand of God. Stephen's vision is exactly what the everlasting arms of the eternal God look like. Jesus himself, open hands, open heart, open heaven. That's pretty awesome. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at Saul's feet. So Saul was there watching Stephen. He stoned to death. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. You see, he had already known about Jesus. That's the same thing Jesus prayed on the cross. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Receive my spirit. Then Stephen fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold their sin against them. That's exactly what Jesus said from the cross when he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Do you see the heart of this guy? How could he be like this? Because he had this picture in his heart, and now he saw it through an open vision, Jesus standing there with open arms. I mean, if Jesus was standing at the right hand of the Father, and the Father of the Holy Spirit allowed Stephen to see this, it must have been some sort of awesome picture. I don't know what Jesus would have been doing, but he wouldn't have been standing like a model just pointing. I mean, he wouldn't have just been standing there with his hands on his hips like some genie or something like that. He'd have been standing there, friends, listen, if I was Jesus, the best I can come up with is I would have just been standing there with everlasting arms. Brother, you're about to meet me. You're going to come. Oh, you're going to be so happy today. Oh, just endure that for a little while. You're going to be so happy in just a few minutes. Oh, my goodness. And then after he had said, Lord, do not hold that sin against them, 
when he had said this, the Bible says he fell asleep. Just exactly what Jesus did. When he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then the Bible says Jesus fell asleep. You see, the Romans didn't kill Jesus and the Jews didn't kill Jesus. Jesus laid down his life. The Bible says he says, no man takes my life. I lay my life down. I lay my life down for my friends. Amen. How could this happen to Stephen is the question. When the righteous one, when the beloved one is looking over the balcony of heaven, he's got his eyes fixed on Stephen. You know, the question always becomes, why do bad things happen to good people? You ever asked that question? You ever thought that question? You ever heard it asked to you? I mean, people ask that. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why did he have to die if the everlasting arms of the eternal God were present? It's because Stephen, just like Jesus, Stephen chose to die. Stephen could have zipped his mouth, not said a word, just let them pass through, not confronted them. But here's the thing I thought the Lord said to me. Everything in life works together for the good, as we know. And there was a man that was present by the name of Saul. And Saul saw the heart of Stephen, something that really puzzled him. I want to tell you something. Everything you do, everything you do is not wasted. You may walk away from a situation going, man, that seemed like a failure. They didn't get it. I tried to witness to them about the Lord. They didn't get it. Friends, I want to tell you something. I've seen it happen as, as much as, as quickly as just a few minutes or a few months. But I've seen the word that you've deposited in people ultimately drive them to the cross, bring them to Christ. 21, 22 years ago when I gave my heart to the Lord, I was going through the toughest time in my life. About two days into that, someone gave me a movie. It was on VHS tape. It was called The Years of the Beast. I mean, really? It's an end of the world movie. I'm not a believer. I don't want to watch this. I saw that movie when I was young. It scared the bejeebies out of me. It's all about the mark of the beast and all this stuff, you know, and it just scared me, you know. And someone had the audacity to give me that movie when I'm going through the most hurting time of my life. I was just being gracious and said, yes, I'll, okay, I'll take it. Three or four days went by, and one night about 10.30, I thought, man, if, if I got to go see them again, they might ask me, did you watch that movie? You better watch that movie. And I watched that movie. It was one of the cheesiest looking movies. Special effects were terrible. I watched the whole movie, and at midnight, I turned it off, and I stepped into my room to go to sleep for the night. By 12.05, I was born again. Within five minutes of turning off that movie, and I didn't feel like that movie impacted me in the slightest. I no more laid down in bed, and I felt the Holy Spirit saying, tonight is your last opportunity to come to know me. I'm telling you, I flew out of the bed, gave my heart to Jesus right there. What I'm getting at is when the Apostle Paul, I believe, saw that and how the other Christians responded as they were being martyred, I believe that was part of what was working in his heart so that on the Damascus Road, he knew who he was. He had the revelation already who, who Jesus was because he saw it demonstrated in the lives of other people, even in the most undesirable times of your life. I think Stephen's last words had a lot to do with the Apostle Paul's conversion as he was Saul. I thought about the prodigal son last night as I was thinking about it. And I thought, Lord, what's this story about? Let me tell you what it's not about, okay? First of all, it's not about a man losing his innocence, a man losing his virginity. It's not about the son losing his inheritance. It's even not about him losing his way for a while. It's not about him falling into sin. It's not about him falling into the pig pen. And it's not about him falling into depression and despondency. What it's about is him falling into the everlasting arms of his father. That's what the prodigal son is about. See, you've got to get through all this other stuff to be able to understand the storyline, but the whole story is about him falling into the everlasting arms of his father.
the Good Samaritan that my wife preached about not too long ago, it's not about him falling into the hands of robbers. It's not about him falling beside the roadside half dead. You know what this story is about? It's about him falling into the arms of the Good Samaritan. Of course, the Good Samaritan is Jesus Christ. I want you to see what Jesus provided for this man that day. The first thing he provided was just flat-out tenderness. He was tender to the man. Everybody else was hard-hearted, and they walked around him. But this man got off his donkey, and he knelt down beside him. And I can only imagine him caressing this man, wiping the blood out of his eyes, pushing his hair back. Tenderness. I want to tell you something. The message of grace is a tender message. It's a tender message that's not going to beat you up. It's the first thing you see in the Good Samaritan. He is a picture of Christ. So the first thing he provided was his tenderness. The second thing he provided was treatment. The Bible says he poured on oil and wine and bandaged his wounds. Friends, I want to tell you something. If you'll just listen, the Holy Spirit will tell you how to treat a situation. And you treat them all with grace. You treat them all with tenderness. But he'll give you something very specific. So not only did he provide tenderness and treatment, but he provided transportation. He said, listen, I'm going to take these arms and I'm going to scoop you up and I'm going to put you on my beast. I'm going to do the walking. You can do the riding. See, that's the message of grace. The message of grace says, listen, I'll put your needs first. It's okay. It's okay. There's times we'll be inconvenienced, but grace will rise up in your heart and say, no, do it this way. Do it this way. He provided transportation. But the other thing I really love is he provided his treasure. You see, he took him to an inn and he says, take care of this man. And he gave him some coins. He gave him some money. And he said, I'm going to be coming back in a few days. Just like Jesus said, listen, you can kill me. You can put me in the grave, but I'm going to be coming back in a few days. I'm going to release the treasure of grace. I'm going to release the treasure of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to release the treasure of salvation by grace alone. I'm going to release the treasure of my blood that cleanses every sin and forgives you of everything you've ever done. He released tenderness. He released treatment. He released transportation and he released his treasure. So my friends, that's what the Good Samaritan story is really about. The final one, the woman caught in the act of adultery. John chapter 8 is where that one's at. It's not about this woman falling into sin. It's not about this woman falling into condemnation. It's not about her falling into judgment and it's not about falling rocks. It's not even about her falling reputation. It's about her falling into the arms of a man who loved her when everybody else wanted to kill her. It's about her coming before Jesus, expecting that she was going to die any moment. And he lifted up her chin and he stood her up and he said, Woman, where are those that accuse you? I want to tell you something. If Jesus said that to her and she had a right to be able to say, I'm guilty. The enemy is still trying to do that to us today. He's trying to be our accuser. And Jesus is still saying, where are those that accuse you? I've already defeated the one that's trying to accuse you right now. I've already won big time over him. Don't let him accuse you. Don't let him defeat you. Don't let him say something over you that is not true. You are a blood-bought child of God. Amen. You say, Pastor Mark, can you give me one scripture in the Bible that contains the best image of the everlasting arms of the eternal God. Can you give me one that I can remember when I leave out of here? I sure can. 
You see, there are so many thousands of them. But I felt the Lord say this to me. It is John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, friends, as the Lord was putting this message in my heart, I'm like, God, where am I going with this thing? What are the everlasting arms of the eternal God? He said this, the everlasting arms of the eternal God is love. For God so loved the world, love expressed through Jesus. Love that reaches out to us in the midst of our failures. Love that reaches out to us in the midst of our disappointment. Love that reaches out to us in the midst of our brokenness. Love that reaches out to us in the midst of our losses. Friends, there was a man that walked this earth that loved you and me so much that he stretched out his everlasting arms on an old rugged cross. And he said, Daddy, it's okay. It's okay if they live forever because they should live forever because they were designed to live forever and because of my death and burial and resurrection, they will live forever in the everlasting arms of the eternal God. Father, Sometimes I may not do a good job explaining it, but I see it. I get it. And Daddy, I would just want to thank you for your grace on our lives right now in Jesus' name. I want to thank you that Jesus so loved us. That is what the everlasting arms of the eternal God are. They're Jesus. It's Jesus, friends. And he wrapped them around us. And he said, Daddy, I want them to live forever. And the only way for them to live forever is for me to die and shed my blood, and then you'll put him inside of an eternal God where there's no death, no separation. Father, thank you for your message of grace. I receive it and I impart it in Jesus' name. Amen.